ears to good friends. Cheers. 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 Hmm. That's sort of an oaky afterbirth. Mm. What was that? She did tell me to uh, get a beer and some cheese fries over at Eskimo Joe's. That's very nice, lovely. I only hope you feel this way when I'm done. Because I could destroy this night in two seconds. Why is that funny? <laughs> well, I think it's a bit funny to be trying to define nothing. <laughs> Smooth as a bourbon on a summer day. Strong as a peated scotch in the winter night. This is a fair warning. The Catholic Man Show is about to begin. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. I'm Adam Minahan, sitting here with David Niles, and we have a new good friend of ours that I've been extremely excited to have on the show. This has been at least a month and a half, maybe two months in the making. But we have Pat Flynn, writer, philosopher, business and fitness coach, uh, he has a website called chroniclesofstrength.com. He has a, a very famous podcast called The Pat Flynn Show that I'm a big fan of. Pat, thanks for hanging out with us this evening. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, I want to give you... like Before you, go, before oh, you do yes. Pat, I just want to say I, I appreciate the title of your show. We here at The Catholic Man Show... Also, are very creative when it comes up. Like, what should we call our show? That's for Catholic men. The Catholic Man yeah, I, Show. I, I, I actually, I, I always introduce it as the humbly and originally named Pat Flynn Show. Yeah. Well, there are yeah, no other cheers. Pat Flynn shows that we know of, so it's, it's original as you are. There, you know, there's actually three other Pat Flynns online that um, fake Pat Flynns. Obviously, not real right. Pat Flynns. Yeah. Naturally. Um, Hater and both Pat of them, Flins. yeah. Hater Pat Flynn's fake Pat Flynn's. What, however you want to, you know. As long as it's not, we we know who the real Pat Flynn is. Um, and they're on YouTube. They've got podcasts. So you know, it's hey, we all have our crosses to bear, right? Indeed. Well, the best, the, uh, you know, mine is sitting next to me. But imi know. imitation is the best form of flattery. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dave. <laughs> Uh, no, so Pat, I, I was introduced to your show by a mutual friend of ours, Carlo Broussard. He was on your show, and I was talking to him, and I had a, had a question about Essence. He was on our show not too long ago, and he said something on our show, and I had a, a question about it. I wasn't sure exactly how to articulate it, so I shot him an email, and he said, Hey, I'm actually going to be on this show called The Pat, Pat Flynn Show. Uh, check it out with uh, Gavin Kerr. And that was when you first started the intro to the uh, Aquinas' Five Ways. It was the first one that you guys did. Um, and so you started off with the first one, which we were talking about essence and essay and all that stuff. And I was like, it was mind-blowing. And so I was super pumped. You introduced me to Gavin Kerr, which I've like dug into headfirst with all of his stuff and tried to find all of his articles and... Um, and uh, Dr. Uh, Brian B. Song was another one that like uh, like you introduced me to. He's 
he's epic. He's awesome. I love I love his stuff. His debate that he had uh, recently with oh I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. What was her name? Uh, Megan Fritz. Megan Fritz. Yeah. I mean that was a, that was a great debate. It was two people who didn't necessarily agree with each other on on things, but they had a civil conversation, a public discourse that was fruitful. I thought, which is few and far between these days. So um, thank you for hosting those. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, Gavin, Brian, both have become good friends of mine. Megan, the conversation with Megan was was interesting because that started as something of a Facebook debate. And as I'm sure the two of you are fully aware, Facebook is not the most productive platform to have an exchange. So they were, they were going back and forth on essentially Megan's um, view of um, agnostic pluralism, I suppose I would call it. And uh, I was chiming in uh, a little bit here and there, and I said, "Hey, why don't we just take this off of Facebook? I've got a podcast, and we can we can uh, finish it there." And uh, I'm glad we did because tone doesn't always transfer so well on Facebook. Right, things no can get unnecessarily heated. But as soon as we brought it on the podcast, everyone was super chill. We had a great exchange. So I'm glad I'm glad that you uh, thought that it went well because um, I had a blast with that one. Yeah, so you have on on Fridays you release a Philosophy Friday course or lecture or discussion or debate or some so, some sort of conversation that you have on your podcast, and then Sundays you also have a, like a theology. I forget what you call it. It's Sunday school. Sunday or school. Something. Yeah, Sunday school. Right. Um, yeah. And then in between, then you have your fitness and business kind of classes or interviews with uh, other guys. So it's really cool for for guys who. Or all across the spectrum, whether you're Catholic or not Catholic, uh, you, you appeal to a lot of different guys. So it's awesome. Well, thank fan. you. Yeah, I call, it, I call it a generalist podcast. So I try not to be, well, I'm certainly eclectic, but I like to have a sort of overarching theme. And my uh, most recent book came out in 2019, um, also humbly named How to Be Better at Almost Everything, is all about this idea of generalism and skill stacking. Uh, and the idea there is that, and I'm talking largely to entrepreneurs, but I think it, I think it, it universalizes, is that at least in today's world, today's economy, you're going to find a unique set of advantages, not just by going deep, but also going wide, by focusing on uh, building skills in a variety of different areas and then learning to stack and combine those skills to form competitive and creative advantages in life. So specialization, good, fine, but being a generalist, that's the ticket today. So I try to bring that theme on my mm -hmm. podcast. So we, you know, we, we focus on philosophy, we focus on theology, we focus on fitness. I have the occasional business episode, and I explore other things that are sometimes selfish and just interesting to me. Uh, I've been a musician for most of my life, so I sometimes like to talk about that. Writing is obviously another big theme. Virtue. Uh, I have to admit, my podcast is it is largely selfish, as I think some of the the most interesting podcasts are. Because if you're not interested in the stuff you're talking about, it's hard to. It's just hard to make good content. I mean, I can I, maybe it's just me, but I can almost never sit down in front of a microphone or a blank page and produce anything meaningful, meaningful unless I'm like passionate about it at that moment, at that very moment. Well, speaking of selfish, I am also someone who's good at almost everything, and so I just really, I just feel like we're really connecting right now, Pat. I mean, then your next book should be how to win at everything. You know, it's like. <laughs> Because that's essentially, you know, when you're someone like yeah, us. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, you just compete at all those things that nobody else competes at. 
right? So, so yeah. in fitness, the, the key to being a world record holder is you just invent a lift. <laughs> right. right. That's, that's the kind of, yeah. like the Jefferson lift, whoever invented the Jefferson yeah, yeah, lift. Yeah, this is the like blindfolded that, so. deadlift. That's right. what, the, it's a totally different thing. Yeah. And then you can write the Number book. Number one in the world. How, yeah. to, how to stay humble in 10 easy steps and how I did it in three. There you go. <laughs> so Pat, in college, one thing that I learned is that if you could learn three songs on an instrument, people just assumed that you had mastered that instrument. And so... I would go to a party and throw, oh, you, there's a harmonica here? Yeah, let me see that thing. You know, you play one song, you play another song, you play another one. And then at, at that point, you can kind of pull them in like, you know, that that's enough. You know, I'm, you know, I'm done with the harmonica for right now. And people just think, wow, you know, that guy, he, so can do, he can do anything. And you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, juice squeeze, right? So that's a lesson I learned as a musician pretty early on. And it's something, it is a lesson it took me a long time to learn because I used to practice the guitar, you know, like eight hours a day. I was, I was obsessive. I wanted wow. to be that uh, it's a full -time virtuoso job. pyrotechnician. Yeah, I mean, I was serious about it. I still play a lot, nowhere near as, as, as that much, but that was, that was my obsession. But then, you know, I was in high school, I have my band, we're doing these Battle of the Bands, and we're losing. Like consistently losing and, you know, how to be humble in 10 easy steps. I was definitely the best guitarist in high school. Like, I, there's no <laughs> question about that. And, but we would lose to the guy who played all the Dave Matthews band's covers, right? And I'm like, I, I don't uh, understand, right? Cra crashing to me. Right, yeah. but there's, to your point, there's this difference between what impresses specialists and what impresses everyday people, right? Um, so what I learned many years later um, was that, okay, it's cool to be a, a hardcore specialist. You definitely um, will impress other guitarists by doing that. But the guy who wins the Battle of the Bands, the guy who impresses people at college parties, if that's what you're into, um, they don't have to be the best on the fretboard, but if they can do some basic things, but if they can also sing, maybe they can dance a little bit, maybe they can entertain a crowd. It's kind of more of the total package, all the different skills in combination that gets more of the thing that a musician wants, which is just to be, to entertain people, right? Right. Um, then the person like me who was just trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper into just one specific area. Yeah. And so if there's you a do deep it, insight what you brought up. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can do it with gorgeous biceps, that's just the, like, the icing on the cake, you know? 100%. So, okay. So, anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about all of the, I mean, as important as these things are. Right. So I brought, so we wanted to talk about natural law. Uh, I think that natural law is something, I mean, so we're going to be talking about some, we're going to have some philosophical terms today. If you're new to philosophy, uh, you, we'll, this will still be an intro level, so so hang in there with us. Don't turn, the, don't turn it off yet. Uh, hang in there with us, but because it's very important as, as Catholic men to understand what natural law is. Um, and before we maybe get going, uh, definitions are, are, are a good way to start. Pat, do you want to maybe define what natural law is for maybe somebody who's never heard of that term before? Sure, and I'll, I'll keep things as basic as I can and avoid terminology, um, unnecessary terminology. But then I, every time I try and do that, I always find that the terminology is there for a reason. I end up that you act on some so kind of we'll potency that's that. you act on some kind of potency that's too high level than the, what you're supposed to be, or something. Yeah, you start describing things, and you're like. Okay, now I see why they 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 had these terms come in, right? Right. Um, the terms anyway, are important. The point. Yeah. important. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, traditional natural law. What is it? Well, it's a, it's a great ethical system. 
right, with links all the way back to those uh, great uh, Greek philosophers of uh, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, uh, comes up, of course, in our uh, wonderful Catholic tradition. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is often seen as a sort of acme of uh, traditional natural law theory. And then it takes, you know, a big hit in the modern age for various reasons that we can get into. So simply put, um, traditional natural law, and just a little bit of background. So for your listeners who aren't, aren't familiar, I, I haven't always been Catholic. I was a religious skeptic for many years. Um, but always a student of philosophy, always very interested in philosophy. And I was always deeply disappointed with many modern ethical theories. I always found them grossly inadequate or almost horrendously immoral in some of their consequences, whether it's utilitarianism, uh, consequentialism, pragmatism, whatever. Kantianism or deontology was always uh, fairly attractive, but it never quite did it all the way for me, if that makes sense. And so I stumbled upon traditional natural law which really is trying to um, figure out what it means to, to live a good life. And it grounds what uh, a good life is in the essence of things or the natures of things. So that's where the term natural comes from, natural law. And it's, it's committed to a couple of metaphysical assumptions, which we can um, spend some time talking about. And the first one is this idea of essentialism. The things of the world really do have an essence or a nature, or to use some Aristotelian terminology, which I promised I wouldn't do, <laughs> substantial forms. Three, right? three, minute, three um, minutes into the conversation. We just are just, just jumping on. So what we're doing is it, it's all very... Right, it's all very common sense, right? There's such right. thing as a, as a human nature. There's a such thing as a dog nature. What it means to be a dog. Such thing as an acorn nature. Whatever it means to be an acorn. Such thing as an electron nature. Whatever it means to be an electron to have a certain mass spin, a uh, certain inclination to be attracted to protons. Right. So we all. I just want to emphasize that we all see the world in a very common sense way, in an essentialist way. Right. It's just kind of, you know, putting some. Uh, technical uh, boundaries and uh, definitions on it, as philosophers do. And to determine um, what is good for something requires understanding what that something is for. There's, there's almost a functional concept of the good in traditional natural law, right? So uh, one of my professors used to quote one of his professors who would say, if Aristotle were to talk about what a saw is for, well, a saw is for sawing, and it's good when a saw is sawing. Or a saw is most a saw when a saw is sawing. Now, saws are interesting because they're, they're artifacts. We sort of build them and we impose a purpose or a function on them. But we're mostly concerned with things in the natural world, right? Natural kinds, natural essences. Um, things like human beings, acorns, um, dogs, cats, things of that sort. And determining what their essence is and what their aims are. And so here's where we'll introduce just another concept uh, quickly, and this is the idea of teleology. So these are the yes. two foundations of natural law, metaphysical foundations. We have essentialism on one hand, that there really are um, essences, natures in the world, and teleology is a directedness. Those essences or natures are pointed at a particular end or possibly ends. It could be a certain effect or a range of effects, but they're, but they're always... They have natural inclinations, we might say. So stock example might be the acorn. Its natural inclination is always pointed at becoming an oak tree. Now it might be frustrated, it might be impeded, but acorns never become giraffes spontaneously or lions. They're, they're always reliably becoming 
oak trees, for example. So it's good when the acorn becomes an oak tree. And trees have natures themselves, right? We say it's good when trees sink deep roots and have strong trunks, and we know what a good tree is based on what a tree is striving or naturally inclined to do. And if a tree is withered and weak and doesn't sink very deep roots, we say that's a bad tree. And we mean that as a matter of objective fact, not opinion, not that I would prefer my trees to be a different way, but given our inherent grasp of what tree nature is and its natural inclinations, there's no fact value distinction here. And that's what I want to emphasize. And that's, that's something that natural law is, is capable of doing in a sense that I don't think any other world, uh, any other ethical uh, theories are, is it can close that fact value gap because there's, there just is no distinction between fact and value on traditional natural law. To understand the essence of something is to understand what is naturally perfective of it. Um, and so, yeah, so maybe that's just enough to trot out right here at the beginning. Uh, I know I said I wouldn't dump too many terms too quickly, but uh, you guys let me talk. So. No, 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 I think that was a, that was a, great, a great explanation of what it is. Um, so I think when I just think about natural law, it seems to me that that is what our culture is that's what it's missing the most uh, uh, just a grasp of reality um do you agree with that or do you think there's something more fundamental than like is there something that comes first before natural law uh that maybe like, like divine law like that well, law well, would come first. well it comes first like in a certain order law, yeah yeah eternal law yeah, yeah. but i i mean you don't have the thing is you don't have to be religious to understand natural law natural right. law is plain it's in front of us for everyone to see you know right. so in in some ways i think actually yeah. divine law comes later even though it its origin is first if you don't understand natural law then divine law kind of takes on this it doesn't make as much sense you know you, right yeah yeah you're right so like in the in ontologically speaking of course you know god is before creation so you know the eternal law is going to be before natural law but in our order of knowing we can work through understanding the natural law to get to the eternal law so right. sort of the reverse there and I, yeah i think you're spot on uh to your other point no you do not have to be religious to affirm natural law you could be an atheistic aristotelian now i don't think that's i don't think that's sustainable at the end of the day um, because I think you're going to need God to make sense of essentialism and teleology. And, and in fact, th those are the two pillars that Aquinas really uses to launch his fifth-way argument for God's existence. But you could superficially um, just work out a lot of traditional natural law theory without bringing God into the picture at all. So I think God is the underlying necessary support system to ground it at the end of the day. And I think once you affirm these pillars, you're going to have everything you need to make a robust metaphysical argument for God. But you can do all the ethical work um, without bringing God in at all, really. And that should, right. that should, I think that should be attractive to people who are secular. Like, we don't need to point to the Bible. We don't need to uh, talk about divine command ethics or anything like that. This is something that somebody who's secular, agnostic, atheist, um, should uh, could and should be able to recognize. Yeah, I mean, I think so too, because ultimately we're just talking about reality, just the way things are. And you look around, you know, with gender th theory and all of these ideas that the left just really loves. Um, they just, the only way you could even begin to believe in them is if you have completely divorced yourself from reality or you were uh, just raised 
to believe something about the world that's just not true. I mean, obviously something that's not part of natural law. Right. And there's always, it's one of those things where you can only escape it for so long mm -hmm. uh, on a couple of levels, right? So I, I want to argue if without a commitment to natural law, uh, you're not going to have medicine, right? All medicine is committed to there being a norm, right? Uh, that there's some, some norm, some range of what, of what a healthy human being is, right? There's a reason that when somebody is born with clubfoot, we say that there is a defect, something's wrong, something has deviated from the way that a foot should be. So whatever people want to say on Twitter about, um, you know, against natural law, as soon as they're going to the doctors, that implicit commitment of norms, essences, inclinations is right there, right? Yeah. Now on another level, um, I think we can be even stronger than this because if we say that there's no essences, there's no teleology, that we just that, that everything is a construct of the mind, um, that's you know various mental and social construct theories, right? Um, we immediately run into all sorts of problems. One is the mind itself, right? Is 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 the mind a construct of the mind? Because now we're in a sort of vicious <laughs> circularity, right? Nothing can be the cause of itself. But even think of the, the teleology of reason, right? We believe that whatever else reason is, it's pointed at or directed towards the attainment of truth. And I think this is a really important point because if we want to deny teleology, if we want to deny natural inclinations, um, we're going to have to deny it for, for reason at the end of the day. But then if we don't have something that reason is naturally directed at, we don't have a standard to determine whether we have reasoned well or reasoned poorly. And as soon as we don't have a standard of reasoning well or reasoning poorly, we don't have a standard for arguments. And once we don't have a standard for arguments, we don't have good or bad arguments. And as soon as we don't have good or bad arguments, we have no arguments against traditional natural law. So there's a sort of number of reductios that we can run to show that I don't think you can ever escape this on a performative level with the way you live your life. And I don't think you can ever escape it even on a philosophical level. You're kind of at the end of the day, you're going to be committed to this, so you might as well just try and get it right. Well, Pat, I mean, that might be true for you, but, I mean, <laughs> that's just not true for me. <laughs> right. That's, that's your truth, man. Right. Your truth. Yeah. Yeah. And, is, right. and is that objectively true for all of us, that that's just my truth? Right, right? exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a vicious circle. Yeah, you might think that that's your truth, but for me, that isn't your truth, <laughs> because for me, you have a different truth, you know? Yeah. That's it's right. that's you know, the craziness. That you I've get said into. it before. That your truth is one of my biggest pet peeves in the world. Um, it's like the who caused God objection. I know that like agitates a lot of people um, yeah. because it's so kindergartenish. But I think the your truth probably agitates me even more. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's so. Yeah. I mean, so natural. I mean, when you think about it, like if you understand what something is for, then you can understand what is good for it and what is bad for it, and. For, for a man, for especially for a Catholic man, if you understand like what you're made for, then you can understand that virtue is good for you and vices are, are not good for you. And you can understand how to live your life in accordance to you know the Christian life that, that we're called to live. That That is why natural law is so important. But I think that a lot of guys don't just stop, you know, they have these aha moments or like these uh, campfire moments that they realize, well, what am I made for? What am I doing here? And they and have, what's the meaning of what's life? What's the meaning of life? And they don't realize, you know, they, they don't stop and think, okay, why am I made? Who who made me? What am I here for? And what's good for me? What's not good for me? And I think, I think everybody, if they just had like a introduction to natural law 101 or something like that in high school, that would solve a lot of problems. 
Yeah, I agree. My first ethics class, uh, undergrad ethics class, was actually taught by a strong form moral relativist, like a legit your truth person. Um, hmm. They're out there even how in do the you, academy. Now, I think it, how do you teach ethics? What's that? How does that person teach ethics? Well, Seems so like the I worst have thing a, for them to be teaching. It is important, I think, for people to realize that most ethicists are moral realists. So relativism seems to be much more popular in the on the, in the in pop culture than it is among um, professional philosophers. But they're they they do exist. They are there. And um, one of the conversations we had, um, of course, I was agitated in class, and. Um, and I was I was pushing back against her and 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 this theory, and we were you know we were going back and forth and and at one point she um so let me set the stage a little bit right so she just got done saying um, that she believes that because all morals are are relative you should never impose your values on anybody you should never instruct criticize praise blame condemn etc right now of course notice like. The oughtness of her statements, right? She's already making moral statements after right. she just said this is exactly yeah. what you shouldn't do. So you have an immediate performance contradiction, right? So of course I'm like I'm agitated by this. I'm like, like you have your PhD. What is what? Like, and like these poor children. Think of the children, right? Um, like a lot of people in an undergrad <laughs> ethics class, like they're not that interested. Like they're just this is their elective, but like it seeps in, you know. So like it annoys me as somebody who's like really interested in philosophy, like. Okay, like you might be able to dump this on like nine out of every ten of your students, and who knows how it's going to affect them down the line. It's I think it's a hideous thing to do. So she starts pushing back on me, and she says, "You know, Pat, I think maybe you should, you know, quiet down." And and uh, she said it a little gentler than that, but and maybe give some of the other students time to speak. So I said, "Well, why? My values are speaking up in class. That's what that's oh, that's what nice. I value. That's, well played. That's my truth, right?" And she says, "Well, maybe if you took the time to think about it." Uh, you would value other people's opinion. I said, no, I have thought about it, and my values are what I think. <laughs> no, I, no right. I've already thought about that, right. actually. And <laughs> I don't. Like, these, are, these are my values and my truth. All right, so she, she knows what I'm doing, and she's getting agitated. And this, this is like, you think this, you think this was out of a cartoon. This, this legit happened. Um, one of my friends was actually outside in the hallway monitoring this and, and laughing the whole time. And so I eventually let it go. I go up after class, and we have this, this chat. And... Uh, and I say to her, like, look, I'm really not trying to be a pain, right? Like, I just, I just think that this is just a baddie, baddie worldview. And weirdly enough, weirdly enough, we, we have, uh, we go deeper in the conversation. And it turns out she herself is a Christian. She's a Christian. Um, hmm. And she believes this stuff. I don't, I, I don't think she was Catholic. We didn't get that deep about it. Um, but that really shocked me uh, that somebody of who was even brought up or maintained a Christian faith could promote uh, uh, such a relativistic worldview like that. Yeah. So it just goes to show how, how deep it can run. Mm -hmm. Because in order to believe that, you have to believe that no truth exists. There is no truth outside of yourself. That truth is just there for you to define and you, that there is no real, there's nothing real. Uh, I mean, you really even have to say that, that there's nothing real outside of yourself you know that that tree that everybody sees it's not even really there it's kind of a coincidence that we all agree that there's a tree in this one spot i mean like if you just reduce it to what it really is that's what you end up having to do you know you have to deny everything the world doesn't even exist you don't exist i mean 
because there's nothing real outside of you. Yeah, there's there uh, there are different schools and um, of relativism, if you will. Um, so there are there is that very very strong form of relativism that there, there is just no objective truth relativism, uh, right? And the immediate issue with that is that they're claiming that as an objective truth, right? right? Yeah, is that so absolutely sort of solve, true? Yeah, right. Yeah, just saws off the proverbial branch that they're sitting on. Um, some, you know, a, n a number of philosophers have realized that that's problematic, so they might reach, you know, take a more modest position and say, uh, okay, well, maybe there's some truths out there, whatever they are, maybe mathematical truths or logical truths or truths of, you know, certain facts of, of the natural world, but uh, relative uh, morals, morals are completely relative. So they'll kind of just um, bring relativism just in, into the moral realm itself. I don't know with my previous professor, which she, I mean, she was definitely a strong form moral relativist. My inclination is to think she probably would have gone further than that, um, but I'm just I just never got a chance to to chat with her about it. So there's kind of degrees of relativism out there. Okay, so how would you how would you like? Uh, I think a lot of guys have experienced that, like the moral relativist uh, at at work or you know wherever, and they're they're saying it's not it's my truth, not your truth, or whatever. How would you how would you go about uh, answering that or or combating that? Um, if if you were in that position, right? So if um, well, if they're taking the the strongest form of relativism, I think it's just a two second refutation. I honestly don't think you need to go much further than that. It's right. just it's just so patently false, right? If it's true, it's false. If it's if it's not true, we don't need to pay attention to it, right? It's just it's just a self defeating position. If they want to bring it down to just morality, it gets a little more complicated. But I don't think it's that difficult to defeat. Um, I would say something like this, right? That that we seem to have um, a whole suite of cognitive powers, right? We have reasoning powers, we have powers of sight, you know, physical senses, stuff like that. But we also have a moral power, and uh, this moral power seems to tell us something that we at least perceive as being very true about the world. Like when we there's certain actions that happen that we we really perceive as being truly and utterly wrong. Actions like rape. The Holocaust. I mean, I mean, you name it. So uh, one thing to, to to do is just draw out the consequences that almost nobody would want to accept. Like, do you really want to say that there was nothing wrong about slavery? It was just a different culture or something like that. Do you really want to say that there's nothing wrong about uh, torturing and raping a young child and then killing that child? Uh, is that really what you're? Are you really willing to bite that bullet? Thankfully, most people aren't. Right. You but if the they extreme. do bite the bullet. Yeah, you go to the yeah, but and, if, but in hopes that they don't bite the bullet. <laughs> but if they do bite the bullet, I would say that there's a sort of package deal with our cognitive uh, powers, right? That you can't break one cognitive power without casting doubt on all the cognitive powers. There's no reason to think that our moral power would be so utterly diluted as to just present to us aspects of reality that are completely false. There's no argument against that that couldn't wouldn't also apply to our reasoning power. For example, right, and as, so as soon as you try to damage or strike down our moral power, you're going to take down our reasoning power with it. And as soon as you do that, you're then going to have no arguments against the moral power either. So we're kind of back to another reductio um, against the, the moral relativist position that our cognitive powers, our human powers, are, are something of a package deal. They're either going to be generally reliable. Doesn't mean they're infallible. Obviously, you can make mistakes, but general reliability—they really do tell us something about the world, 
or we're going to have to accept the position of, of, of un- unsustainable self-defeating skepticism, I would say. So, Pat, I think that in the, the realm of morals, most people, 99.9%, however many nines you want to put at the end of that number, of people are going to say, yeah, murder is wrong. All of those terrible things that you just mentioned, those are obviously morally wrong. The the question that the area of debate really comes down to the 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 area of sexuality you know okay and so i think natural law it always boils down to it always it it always it always comes down to sex i know i get it it's authority first but that but then like right after authority it is always about the sexual ethics sure but i think that natural law is the exact place to approach this argument you know because it's you know it comes down to you the rest of your body parts uh, what are they for you know your eyes are for seeing mm-hmm. your nose is for smelling and breathing you know i like to use the example that if i just said well i am going to start tasting my food with my eyes i mean that's just what i'm going to do with my body and people would say no don't do that that's bad for your eyes like oh who are you to say what's good and bad for you know it's like so here i am eating my chips and salsa you know, with my eyes. And obviously, I mean, there's like going to be natural consequences that are very <laughs> be swift. Um, but as soon as you we get below the belt, yeah, and everyone would agree with that, that your ears are for hearing, your nose is for smelling, your eyes are for seeing. But like then you get below the belt and people take that same logic and they throw it out the window. And they say like, oh, I probably do anything I want with this. You know, this <laughs> probably... You know, this is free range down here. So what if what what would you say to I mean, I think that's so common, you know, that like, oh yeah, yeah, right. that's your choice. How do we address right. that? So it it really depends where the person is, is coming from. So let me say a couple things. One, natural law is is um once you affirm it, there's almost no escaping a traditional morality. So let me say that because we have these natural powers. These natural powers are aimed towards a natural end, which are good for us, right? So it's always going to be just a matter of metaphysical necessity that if we intentionally frustrate a natural power away from its natural end, it's always going to be bad for us. Um, That's going to be, that's going to include the power of speech, right? This is why we say lying is bad. Lying is immoral. Speech is a natural power aimed at um, getting what is in my head, out through my mouth and hopefully to somebody else communicating uh, truth or at least sincerity, right? Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I have an obligation to communicate what is really in my head and not pervert that, all right? We have uh, powers of uh, nutrient assimilation. Uh, if I decide to become bulimic and intentionally frustrate that power, it's, it's bad for me. And, and people recognize that. People recognize that bulimia is bad. Mm-hmm. But you're right. They seem to dr- – and, and so far, most people would, would agree with this. Yeah, most people understand that lying is bad. I don't think they, they understand how bad it is, and I think they're willing to make too many exceptions. Like, all lying is bad. Um, but they, they suddenly, yeah, once you get below the belt – uh, it's it's like people don't know what that stuff is for, right? Right. Right. right anymore. We all, we all know what it's for, right? Um, right. It, and I hopefully we don't need to do a, a, well, you a have, class here. You have um, boy parts and you have girl parts, <laughs> right? Yeah, and they and, work um, together. Yeah. Right. So you know, part of it is people kind of want to base things on consent, right? This is a this is kind of a modern view. Well, it's it's two consenting adults, or this or that. The problem with consent-based ethics is that at best, 
begs the question, right? So if I said, you know what, I consent uh, for one of you to go into my neighbor's house and steal all this stuff, people would be like, well, ho hold on a minute. You can't consent to that because you don't have the power to you give have the authority that consent. To do that. Right. 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 So people just assume that you have the power to consent to your own harm. And the natural law theorist would say no. That right. at best begs the question, right? Consent isn't some magic wand that we can just wave and say, I consent, whoosh, and now it's a good act, right? <laughs> no, clearly not, right? By other circumstances, we would say, no, you can't just consent to that because you don't have the power to do that, right? Consent only applies when you already have the power uh, to do something and, and something is already within uh, your power and, and it's already morally permissible uh, for you to do that. So if, if uh, certain uh, acts that you do either to yourself or with other people who are willing to do those acts um, are under question for their moral permissibility, it's not enough just to say that it's two consenting adults because that's exactly what's under question. So right. that's, that's what I would at least bring up to a lot of people at first because that seems to be the common line that if, if you're consenting either with yourself uh, or other people that it's okay because you're consenting. And I would say, well, that's at best question begging because you might not actually have the power to consent to that, or at least it wouldn't be morally permissible even if you if even if you thought it was. And, and we can think of examples, right? Just if somebody wanted to consent to cut off their own arm, most of us would, yeah. would hopefully want to stop that person and right. say, no, that's, that's really bad for you. You actually don't have uh, moral permissibility to do that because you never have moral permissibility mm -hmm. to intentionally harm yourself in any way. Because that's not what your right? arm is for. Right. And that's why we even have like people in the police that help people try uh, suicide watch. You know, if right. somebody's trying to jump off the bridge, we're like, no, don't do that. That's not good for you. And we try to talk them down and try to try to get them off the bridge. There's a purpose for that. It's not like we're just saying like, oh, go ahead. It's no big deal. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a reason for having those. Yeah. But, you know, just getting... I, I, Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, go, you know, you finish your thought and then I'll hop in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, well, I was just going to say, you know, this is kind of the whole missing piece is just this fundamental understanding of who the human person is. What are we for? You know, we were, you know, we're made up of all of these different parts, each are for four different things. Um, and you have to understand all of this. I mean, really, sometimes I feel I was kind of joking about it earlier, like, well, you you know, some people have boy parts and some people have girl parts, but sometimes I really feel like I have to say that to people that have, I should have to start there. Like I shouldn't have to say this to you, but based on the thing that you just said, I feel like I do have to say it to you and please don't be offended. But like you obviously don't understand this and they're for each other. Right. You know, I don't know. It's just, it's baffling. Yes. Yes, it certainly is. But sometimes you have to just take it right back to, to basics. And, you know, let's, let's be honest. Um, one of the, you know, interesting things about not to – yeah, I'm hesitant to do this because the nice thing about natural law is you don't have to bring in religion. Not that I think there's anything wrong with that. But, I mean, one of the things that has come out of uh, Fatima is the, the possibility that uh, – a lot of people who are led away from God are led away from God because of sexual sins. That this is mm. a serious, serious issue. Now, people think, um, you know, of course, murder and, and, and whatever are horrible. But the problem with sexual sins is they're just so common, right? They're just so easy to fall into. 
that these are the things that we should like most of us hopefully probably don't really have to worry about becoming murderers in our lives right but i think pretty much all of us uh certainly me uh for most of my life uh i was deep deep in sexual sin right i mean and this was something i really had to work out as i was becoming catholic and realizing because i had a completely liberal sexual ethic right i was one of those total libertarians with my with sexuality it's like hey you you consent you consent then anything goes right so this was something i completely changed my mind around on and had to change my mind on and i'm glad i did i am better off for it and it's one of those things uh sort of uh, practical wisdom that you know you can you can maybe understand the arguments of it but i don't know if you'll ever really get it unless you try to live it and experience the benefits of that and i would say that that just goes for the virtuous life yeah uh, in general um but yeah i just i mean this is something that i had to change my entire lifestyle over uh even my marriage right i was with my wife we were not uh catholic we were married before we were catholic so we had to you know, uh, conform to to, sure. to the natural law, to the teachings of the church on all this. Uh huh. Yeah, Pat, I think you're so right that, especially for men, uh, this you know the, the sexual sexuality of the sexual aspect of morality is something that almost all men struggle with. But men will never experience freedom until they have learned mastery of themselves in this way. If you have not mastered your sexual powers then you will never mm. be free. Right. I mean I mean as a man because yeah. we have we are we have so many powers. And if we but that one is so fundamental, so essential so to to does, our being, you know what I mean that, that if And if doesn't Aquinas talk about this because, because it's so powerful that it's the concupiscible appetite is so strong and so vivid and so visual and so uh strong within man that 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 is the one that is the toughest to uh, overcome or, or, or to conquer is that right pat i may be wrong there i'm, I'm uh, yeah generally I, I don't have the exact quote off of my head but yeah. i mean it's obviously true right i mean we, we, and it's funny but you what well, you bring up about men because most men these days um they are very much attracted to virtue ethics when you trot it out i know because i, I talk about it on my podcast a lot and i have a lot of mm -hmm. men who are into fitness right and they're like oh yeah self-mastery rah rah heck yeah right like I can discipline myself with dieting. I can discipline myself with with lifting weights, um, but but yeah, uh, but uh, my sexual powers. Oh, oh man, right? It just it's like it, it's the disconnect is amazing, right? It's like either you want self mastery or you don't. Either you want to be free in the Catholic sense, which is freedom for excellence, and this comes you know right in line with traditional natural law, that true freedom is disciplining the desires. To make the good life at first accessible and then effortless disciplining the desires to make the good life at first mm. accessible and then effortless people get this with nutrition the good life of health right physical bodily health uh, fitness all that stuff but what is uh, an appetite that if we don't try to rein it in we don't try to keep it in its proper place and we're not talking about being prudes right catholics have a very healthy and robust view of sexuality it's just in its proper proportion, in its proper place, a monogamous marital relationship. Um, that is the thing that will make you uh, utterly a slave, right? And we just think of the, just just not the, the, the general promiscuity, but the widespread addiction to pornography mm -hmm. uh, that is exceedingly psychologically damaging. It, it supports an industry that is utterly depraved, abusive, 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just want to emphasize that like men, you should be attracted to self mastery because that's what true freedom is, but that is going to involve not just fixing your diet, not just getting on an exercise program, but the whole self. And that includes the sexual powers as well. Pat, do you think many men pursue physical and dietary mastery in order to, uh, pursue their the way that they're already enslaved by their sexual powers. I mean, do you think that has, I mean, you, you would know more than me. Yeah, this is something uh, I, I mean, let's be frank, right? I mean, that's why did I start working out <laughs> when I was 18? You know, right. well, it started for, for two reasons, right? One is I, I kind of grew up the chubby, overweight kids. So, you know, I was kind of, I wasn't like it, totally bullied. I had a lot of friends, but I was picked on a lot and it bothered me. Um, so that was one motivation, but then you get a taste of it and uh, you don't have a lot of virtue and you kind of start just doing the right things for the wrong reasons, right? We're all familiar with that. And that itself yeah. is a vice. So you do it, uh, you work out not because you want to discipline your desires and you want to have an aesthetic practice and you want to be a good role model for your kids and you want to keep the body healthy, but because you want to show off, you want to be vain, you want to be prideful. So, I mean, intentions are so critical and they are a big part of, of natural law theory, right? So we, we do look at outcomes as well, but we also focus on intentions. So this is something I like to talk about a lot in fitness is like fitness itself, um, it can be used toward virtue or it can be used toward vice, depending a lot on your intentions. You can have the exact same outcome, right? But depending on why you're striving for that outcome can either cause you to flourish and be a more virtuous person or cause you to cave more in on yourself, become more narcissistic, uh, more obsessive, and ultimately more dissatisfied in the long term, especially as you get older and you don't perform as well and you don't look as well. And that's a real trap. That's something I see in the fitness industry all the time. People develop all sorts of eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders with exercise. They never feel like uh, they're keeping up with the, with the, with the next guy or, or the next lady. Uh, and it's no wonder because they started with intentions that weren't oriented towards virtue as I did, as I did, you know, so my intentions now of why I work out are radically different than, you know, when I was in my, um, late teens, early twenties. Okay. So that, that brings a, a good question. Like if you read the Stoics, uh, if you read, you know, Cicero or Marcus Aurelius, uh, other Stoics, they, they all talk about self-mastery. They talk about denying yourself. They talk about you know, making sure that you're, you know, you're lifting weights, you know, that you're denying all the concupiscible and irascible appetites you have under control. How does that play into the Christian life? Because it seems like at times the Stoics do it just for the, the sake of uh, pain or not, or the sake of loss. I don't know. I don't know how to articulate this that well. I haven't thought about this enough, but it just, it just seems like that if you read the Stoics, you seem like, okay, they're doing it just for the sake of denying themselves, which is fine, which is a good habit, I guess, to, to, to follow. But how does that play into the Christian life? Because it seems like sometimes the Stoics, you're doing it for just the sake of the denial, but for the Christian life, there's the sacrificial uh, love. There's the sacrificial uh, giving that you that you have when denying yourself. Does this make sense? I'm sorry, I, I haven't really thought this through. Makes I'm just I'm just sense. trying I'm trying Makes to talk, walk this through myself. <laughs> right. So yeah, what's what's an issue with the Stoic approach? Well, sometimes it takes intentions a little too far. It makes it seem like it's just your intentions that matter in life. And actually, Aristotle offers the correction to this. He's like, yeah, obviously. 
intentions matter, but there are external factors that matter as well, which is why he adds that a good life should have, say, also a modicum or a moderate amount of wealth, right, for example, because it's hard to develop virtue when you're literally starving to death, right? So there's certain like sort of just basic material needs that realistically need to be met to have a good life as well. So Aristotle offers something of a correction there. Christianity is very interesting and different because um, in one sense, it's very much the same. In another sense, it's radically different because we have the theological virtues and we have a much more robust understanding of God's causality, that everything good first and ultimately comes from God. So if you focus too much on Stoicism, you might fall into Pelagianism, for example, right? Yeah. Um, so the Christian life, the Catholic life, is first understanding that it's grace first, right? Uh, I can never merit any goodness on my own, right? At most, um, I can only demerit on my own. I can only resist the Spirit's call. I can only place an impediment to the grace of God working within me. So, you know, once, um, once we're sort of infused with the virtues, and Aquinas thinks that the virtues are infused all at once, which surprises people. Of course, uh, they can be... Um, I don't want to say in competition with, but we can still have vices that we've ingrained over a long time that that, that takes time to to, um, to to undo that, right? Because in this important, virtues are just are good habits, right? That's what virtues are. I don't know if we define that yet. And vices are bad habits. So good habits are habits that tend us towards our, our thriving and our flourishing. Vices are habits that tend us away from it, just to um, get a quick definition out there. So... Yeah, so I think Aristotle might offer one of the corrections to the Stoics that I think you, you were hinting at, um, Adam. And then the Christian life just needs to consider um, God's universal causality, right, in the line of the good, um, that we can really only do one thing and one thing by ourselves, which is introduce nothingness into reality or absurdity into reality. We can fail to do what we otherwise could have done under the impulse of God, right? We can fail to consider the moral rule in certain situations, and then we can uh, make a judgment or perform an act where the moral rule should have applied, and then we have an action that is missing something. It's missing a consideration of the moral rules. So we have a privation of being, which is, this is an evil. That's what an evil is, is a privation. And that is, that is on us. That's the only thing where we are the first cause of is, is nothingness. And we, and we can be the first cause of it precisely because it's nothing. It's an absurdity. It's something that's missing that should have been there. But anything good, anything positive always and first comes from God. So I would say we just need to make those theological um, nuances, which are very important. But it also has practical implications because what does that mean? It, it means we should always be going to God, never be resisting uh, or trying to put an impediment to God working within us, God transforming us as, as Catholic men, praying uh, that God continues to give us the grace to live the virtuous life and understanding it's not something that we can just pull ourselves up by our metaphysical bootstraps and get done. It needs to be something that is a, a matter of cooperation with the grace that God is giving us. But don't you think it's also about not, not just like the suffering for the suffering's sake, but the redemptive suffering that that takes uh, the Christian life. If you take, you know, there's the, there's parts of the stoicism that's good that you denying yourself, uh, but not denying yourself for just for that sake, but denying yourself maybe for a greater good in cooperation with our Lord, uh, maybe for a particular grace for your wife or your children or yourself or you know for our country or 
for whatever x y or z don't you think that that wouldn't that be the separation of the stoicism versus the christian life yeah i think that's a, a really good point and i think i think it is right so suffering takes on a whole new meaning and purpose with christianity you you mentioned it uh for redemptive uh purposes right suffering in love self-sacrificial suffering you know the old catholic cliche of, of offering it up which is a, a very real thing and we also would hold um eleanor stump is great on this that god you know in our post-fall human condition for rational beings god will allow suffering if and only if it delivers an outweighing benefit primarily for the individual so suffering can be seen as uh, and this is this is very very early in the christian tradition um in fact saint paul makes this very well known right that suffering in an, in an interesting and paradoxical way is a is a sign of being loved especially by god right mm -hmm. that there's certain gifts uh, that suffering brings that we don't we don't always fully quite understand it. I think we can look back at certain aspects of our life very often and see, oh, I see how that suffering brought about some some really greater good. But I think there's other connections that we'll only be able to see in, in the hereafter of how our redemptive and self-sacrificial suffering helped others as well. But it's it's also about uh, conforming wills, love, right? Love unity requires two wills freely coming together. Um, and suffering can help do that. Suffering can break down our uh, egoism. It can break down our superficiality. It can cause us to be more empathetic, more compassionate, uh, and seek greater uh, union with other people, uh, to realize that we are radically dependent. We are not independent, which pushes us more into our, our social nature. We're not just rational animals, but we're rational dependent social political animals, right? So suffering can serve all these uh therapeutic purposes if you will and christianity understands this uh, i think obviously far better than stoicism does i think i think stoicism and this is the general catholic posture towards many different um philosophies and belief systems right it, it can recognize yeah there's something good there there's something right there but it's a little bit off here or it's incomplete there and i think your your note about suffering is spot on suffering takes on a much more transformative beautiful and, and loving meaning in Christianity that it seems to somewhat lack. It's a little little stale, a little cold in a lot of the, in the Stoics. But that's why it's so popular in a lot of other even fitness or business, you know, realms. You know, that's why Jocko is, is really big. That's why, uh, you know, all these other guys are really big in, in, because they're, they're teaching, denying themselves. They're teaching to uh, say no to your appetites. Uh, so that way you can say yes to the greater goods of, of different things. And that's why I think it's just so interesting. They're so close to the Christian life and in the, in the understanding. But it's, but it's, an, it's an overreaction. I mean, ultimately, the Stoic has to say you're utterly depraved and suffering is, is like what you deserve. You deserve to suffer because you're, you know, this is, this is what you are. You know, you're just bad, so you should be suffering. And it's I I get why people are attracted to that because if someone has pursued their appetites their whole life and given themselves all of these good things and it has not satisfied you you say well maybe I deserve bad things you know maybe I and not that suffering is bad in and of itself I mean it is kind of natural suffering is on a natural level is bad um, we you know we were not made for suffering originally but I I do understand why you might flip the other way but it's an overreaction to i have given myself everything i wanted all the time and that didn't work so maybe i'll deny myself everything i want all the time to see if that works you know it just 
Yeah, what do you but, say? But that? it's not the virtue. What do you know? say to that, Pat? Yeah, I want to uh, first caution a couple things because people might take this the wrong way. I don't want to do that. It, like suffering is bad, right? Like you're you're spot on. So sometimes people might hear what I've said and they might say, oh, great, I should go cause people to suffer. And no, that would be a wicked and evil thing to do, right? <laughs> Just because God might permit suffering right? because it might be the best or only available means to deliver some outweighing benefit doesn't mean that that alleviates us of our moral obligation yeah. to alleviate It can be redeemed. Right? It so, can be redeemed. Right. Exactly. Right. It can be redeemed. And it doesn't take away the badness of people who are truly suffering, right? So you don't want to be tone deaf and go into somebody who's like suffering from chemotherapy and say, God, you are real you lucky. Know. Lucky you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Blessed be you. Um, now, like it might, it might be true, right? We know people who with, with great grace um, and have suffered huge physical and mental impairments, their lives still thrive as a whole person, right? Which goes to show that we're more than just the physical or mental. We're a whole person because you can mm -hmm. be really um, – not thriving physically and mentally and still thrive and flourish and have a hugely good virtuous life as a whole person, right? So I think that's something interesting yeah. uh, to keep in mind. And it's something that's kind of overlooked, I think, by you know maybe the Jocko crowd where they maybe focus a lot on the, on the physical and mental, but they overlook the whole person. Not entirely, right? But I just would want to say you could still uh, thrive hugely. And we have examples through history of really great heroes and saints who suffered physically mentally sometimes both in immense ways and are people we hugely admire and right. esteem and say as a person they 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 flourish more than almost anybody i, I can right. think of which is heroic which is why we look up to them because it's heroic the way they right do it. yeah it's worthy of replication right. you, yes yeah you said something else too but it, uh, i totally forgot what it oh, was. i said well the, you know when you take that suffering and you you unify it to the cross that's heroic which is why we look up to it right Right. Yeah. yeah. Before that, there was something else about the the nature of suffering. So, oh, yeah. I wanted to emphasize. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying that. Yeah, suffering is bad. Um, but then the Stoics, they kind of think, oh, well, I must be bad, so I deserve to suffer. And then they, people today might overreact and go back instead of. Well, well it I, is I funny. It is funny that you know now, uh, uh, fasting is such a big deal. Intermittent fasting is such a big thing. Uh, you know uh, uh, these CrossFit. But to be fair, everything. I think intermittent fasting is popular because it works. You know, as a as a diet, it's very effective and it's easier to do. You know what but I like, mean? So but, I think that's why but, it's popular. But the Catholic faith has always said, like, yeah, you should be fasting. Sure. Because it works not only not only on a natural it, not it, only on a natural level, but on a spiritual level yeah. as well. Catholic fasting though isn't like necessarily going to help you lose weight i mean depends on how I, depends on how you do it i don't know, you know Lent for me i always drop some pounds <laughs> that's true yeah yeah uh, the best i've the well, best i've looked as an adult was coming off of exodus 90 <laughs> last year i mean like ab hands down you should you guys should have seen me okay it was incredible yeah it, it depends if you're doing like those medieval black fasts or not right um yeah yeah so yeah 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 fasting is um is is a really good example, especially in the in the fitness world and nutrition world. Yeah, yeah, fasting are people are typically not fasting these days because they want to develop ascetic disciplines and and grow in virtue. They they just want to lose ten pounds, right? Right. And um, you know, it's funny. I was talking with Brian about this on the on the episode that we did, one of the episodes we did, um, because people can develop, you know, 
it might seem like a good habit, uh, say, with discipline around their diet, but it's actually a vicious habit. It becomes an obsession, right? You think of the person who, who, who can never enjoy a dessert with their wife or kids because they're so obsessed about their macro uh, intake or something like that. Well, the, the difficult thing, the ascetic practice for them at that point is not to just keep eating their uh, small side of sweet potato and baked salmon. But to have the ice cream cone, right? That's, mm. the, that's the difficult thing to do. That's what the appropriate challenge for that person would be. So but that's where the virtue in, is, right? Um, that's where the virtue is. It's in the middle. It's not one – virtue is never an extreme, right? It's always in the middle. Right. So this is Aristotle's famous golden mean, that, that the virtue is, um, is that sort of – yeah, the, the sweet spot between excess and deficiency, right? So the, the classic example would be courage. Courage is what lies between the excess of recklessness of just foolishly rush, rushing into a dangerous situation because maybe you like the thrill of it uh, and, and the deficiency of, of cowardice, of never taking up a challenge or never putting yourself in a dangerous situation even when you know it is the right thing to do. Um, so, yeah, virtue is, is something that uh, the cardinal virtues are prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. And prudence is the chariot virtue, right? This is practical, good reasoning, and this helps us to cart the virtues around and understand how and when and where to apply them, how to do specifically the right thing in the right circumstances to the right person at the right time. That's that's what virtue, which which sounds like a really nice way of saying nothing, right? But that's that's um that's why prudence is so important because circumstances and intentions and all these things vary. There's like an infinite number of situations we can find ourselves in. So prudence is that practical, that habit of good practical moral reasoning where you're just automatically effective right at just knowing what the right thing to do is uh and a lot of that is just is gained through experience of finding virtuous people uh imitating them the the catholic saints are of course great models uh it's not enough just to read nick mckeon ethics for example right you, like it's it's not just getting words into your head it's something that really needs to be lived uh practiced imitated dang I was really hoping that would be enough. Although the commentary of Aquinas on, on Aristotle's ethics could be enough. I'm, okay, I'm so Pat, kidding. let me ask you this question. I've, I've actually never thought about this before, so it just came. I so just, it's going to be dumb. just thought about this. So if you asked me this question, I'm not sure what I'd say, but I'm going to ask it to you. <laughs> well, we're talking about fasting. Fasting seems to be contrary to the natural law. That it, you know, even it even seems like it could be contrary to virtue. If virtue is like this exact middle, like the golden mean, not too much food, not too little. Obviously, if you were to live your whole life, like on days that we fast, if we were to live our whole lives on that much food, we would we'd fail to flourish to our fullest capacity. You know, it's not like right. you'd probably live for all, you know a long time, but you wouldn't be physically flourishing so mm -hmm. how is fasting morally acceptable yeah well when it comes to certain powers right it's important to understand that some are episodic some are not episodic right so our sexual power is episodic we have a an episode right there's a clear uh -huh. climax and and uh, like target if you will a start um, and a again, finish i don't I don't think we need a, a class on this, right? Um, other powers, hair growth, perspiration, uh, they're sort of continuous, it's, it's, uh, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, eating nutrient assimilation is not something that nature is designed for us to do all the time, 
right? And in fact, we know if somebody is doing that all the time that they are suffering from gluttony. There's something seriously wrong there. And uh, breaking from eating uh, not only is something that, that uh, nature has equipped us for, and seem to give us all the mechanisms to deal with, but we actually benefit from it. And that's where the, 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 the contemporary research of intermittent fasting is really fascinating. Uh, and this is something that I was interested in long before I was, I was Catholic, right? What my second book that I ever wrote is called Fast Diets for Dummies. I was a for dummies author for a while. And this is a number of uh, years old now. There's been uh, more good research that comes out. But we find that fasting is actually really, really good for us. It contributes to our, our flourishing, uh, our, our health, right? That there's cellular regeneration, that fasting can reduce inflammation. There's, there's health benefits to fasting that, I think this is a, a published in Cell Metabolism not too long ago, that are irrespective of weight loss, which, is really, which itself is really fascinating because a lot of times uh, for a while the hypothesis was, well, yeah, fasting is good for you, but it's just because it gets you to lose weight. But now there's uh, strong evidence to suggest, no, fasting by itself seems to have uh, health benefits that are, that are independent of the weight loss that it may occur. So I would say they're the seedings of the answer for you, that we're not by nature meant to eat all the time, that ab abstaining from a power is different from perverting the faculty, right? So I have the faculty to eat. Uh, I can abstain from that from no moral fault. However, if I start to eat and then I throw up bulimia, that's the perversion of it, right? So just in the same sense, I'm not under an obligation to talk all the time. Uh, when I do talk, I better talk straight. I better not lie. There's a similar parallel there with, with fasting and bulimia. Find who abstain from the power. Now, there's a threshold, right? There's a threshold that once you reach that, it would become immoral, whatever that is. And that's, that might be largely an empirical question at some point mm -hmm. where you really start to do serious damage to yourself and like starve yourself and, and whatever. Um, so I, that's certainly right, right? Just with, with – because with, now we're, you know – moving from what would be the excess of gluttony to some extreme deficiency uh, in a sense there. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, intermittent fasting, occasional fasts, even extended fasts, right? The human body can seem to thrive uh, significantly even off of extended fasts or difficult. I don't know if they're um, always necessary. Uh, most of the health benefits for fasting seem to occur within the first 16 to 24, maybe 32 hours, stuff like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, I think that was a great. I think that's a great answer. Um, it it does strike me that most of our most of our powers, if you want to say, do benefit from being strained. You know, our physical powers are certain that way. Our mental powers are that way. If we, if we never push them, if we never strain them, then they don't ever grow, um, and they start to they start to slacken. Also, I think that many people suffer from the misinterpretation of the golden mean as if it's a static straight line. Um, and that I don't believe to be the case. I believe that the golden mean is more of a a cyclical back and forth. Many many things in life are cyclical. Almost everything in life is cyclical. Uh, and so I think obviously there are some virtues like charity where the golden mean is uh, as much as possible all the time. I mean you you can't love too much. There is no uh, you know there's no moderation in right, in, right, in charity um so it d right. not all of the virtues have a excess and a and a 
diminishment, right? And that's and, I, and I, yes. yeah, and I would say for that, yeah, you're you're just going all in on the golden mean, right? And that's that's what you want to do. Um, whereas, yeah, take like generosity, right? Like there's there's um, vices that are um, you know extend from that, right? One is just being stingy, but the other one is just um, giving away a whole bunch of stuff just to be showy about it, right? right? Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't want to do that, right? You don't but, want your kids your starving yeah. because you gave everything away to somebody else. You know, it's like you have yeah, to feed yeah, your kids. Be, it, that would be.